Part forty eight of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Appendices number one and number two. Appendix number one. In the foregoing story of the Manchester Man, I have in a great measure dealt with history, recorded and unrecorded, with absolute people, events, and places. I have not thought it advisable to break the narrative with cumbrous footnotes calculated to disturb the general reader, but I consider an elucidating appendix due alike to myself and to all those who, in perusing a word of this kind, care to discriminate fact from fiction. Little of the Manchester I have depicted remains intact. A whirlwind of improvement, exclamation mark, has swept over the town, but old inhabitants will, I think, recognise the faithfulness of my descriptions, as they will remember many of the persons who come and go incidentally throughout. CHAPTER I After writing this chapter, I learned that a cradled infant was washed down the Irwell from the Broughton, not the Smedley and Irkside, in the flood of 1837. I was familiar with the incident I relate when I was quite a child myself, and I am now fifty-four. The two cases are therefore distinct, yet equally facts. In 1771, during the floods which swept away Tyne Bridge, Newcastle, a vessel took up at sea a cradle in which was a child alive and well. CHAPTER three. The Reverend Joshua Brooks comes into my pages naturally. No story of Manchester life at the commencement of the century would be complete without him. I have endeavoured to do justice to a little understood man. Many of his eccentricities are on record. At my own baptism and my mother's churching occurred the scene which I have endeavoured to reproduce. The delicate lady pushed and pulled about was a stranger to my mother and sponsors. A characteristic anecdote which I have not met with in print may not be out of place here. A printer of republican tendencies named Cowdroy took his son to the font, and on the child's name being required, answered, Citizen! Citizen! growled Joshua. That's no name. I shall not give the child a name like that. I've a right to call my child what name I please, and I dare you to baptise him otherwise, boldly asserted Mr. Cowdroy. Oh, you may call him Beelzebub if you like, testily responded the chaplain, and Citizen the boy was accordingly baptised and the large signboard of C. Cowdroy, printer, overlooked the old churchyard long years after Joshua Brooks was laid low in dust and ashes. His odd friendship with old Mrs. Clues is a matter of fact. Similar scenes to those I have described took place at funerals and weddings when he officiated, and his last contest with the grammar school boys may be found in Harland's Collectania. Chapters 4 and 5 the little girl who made her way into the presence of Prince William sat on his knee and amused him and his suite with details of toilettes in progress at home, to be rewarded with a plain shilling, the required information, and a bow as the cortege passed down Oldham Street, was Amelia Daniel, in after years my own mother. The incident of the falling platform on Sale Moor is noted in history. Chapter 7 Mrs. Clues was as eccentric in her way as Parson Brooks, but beyond her dealings with the chaplain and schoolboys, 
her journey to Liverpool, her Sabbath dinners to the poor, and her attire. Her place in this story belongs to the region of fiction. Her shop passed to a relative, but the date of her death is unknown to the writer. Chapters 18 and 19 Peter Lew is rapidly passing out of remembrance, and those who were not themselves eyewitnesses may accuse me of exaggeration. To such I can only say that I have had my details from actors or spectators. The house I have assigned to Mr. Chadwick in Oldham Street was occupied by my maternal grandfather, John Daniel, and he was the paralysed old gentleman in charge of his servant Molly, who, but for the timely interposition of a young man named Tomlinson, one of his own weavers, and Mr. Mabbott, would have been cut down. His daughters, anxious for his safety, looking out for his return home from the warehouse, saw from their open window more than I describe. For one thing, a woman passed with her breast cut off. The two vaunting officers who reared their steeds against the house with threats were a cousin and a fiancé. The man who was shot down in Ancoats Lane whilst bidding his girls to retire was, I believe, my grandfather's tenant. The female sabred on the hustings was a Mrs. Files when I knew her. Her son, Henry Hunt Files, was in my father's employ, and his nephew is now an artist not altogether unknown to the world. From Mrs. Hindley, I had nine years ago the story of her father's fall. The author of the satire on the yeomanry was my paternal grandfather, James Varley of Pendleton. Chapter 33 For the purpose of my narrative, I have antedated an occurrence in the Theatre Royal. I was myself the little miss who cried out in alarm that Edward Keane was killing Mrs. McGibbon, but it was a few years later. Mrs. Broadbent's school occupied the next box to our party on that occasion. I need scarcely add that I have drawn that lady, her schoolroom, etc., from information and observation. The broken collarbone is not an invention. Chapters 29 and 30 The skating incident on Ardwick Green Pond was an episode in the early life of the same John Daniel before named. Blindness followed his long immersion, and when all remedies known in the last century failed, he regained his sight by swimming across the Mersey, as related. I owe it to his memory to say that he must not otherwise be confounded with the man whom I have called Lawrence Aspinall. Chapter 32 The Act for Widening Market Street was obtained in 1821, but I find that the ancient houses did not begin to crumble into dust until the following year. Chapter 38 I'll please my eye if I plague my heart, with its answer and consequences, formed the original base of this story, the willful girl and her handsome savage of a husband, being in all respects but their name's realities. They were both in their graves before the period I assigned to their union. The old hall which witnessed so many outrages and such sad catastrophes may be found in the map of Hardwick's History of Preston under its true name. Chapter 46 For much information respecting the fatal launch of the Emma, I am indebted to the courtesy of the Secretary of the Bridgewater Navigation Company, and also to Mrs. Abel Haywood, who has just presented to Manchester a statue of Oliver Cromwell, in the name of her former husband, Mr. Goadsby, who had been Mayor of the City. 
Mrs. Haywood was originally the Miss Grimes who christened the luckless flat. I cannot close this appendix without acknowledging much kind assistance from literary and antiquarian friends in my researches. Of these, the late John Harland, Esquire, antiquary and historian, the late Thomas Jones, Esquire, librarian of Chetham Hospital, and the Reverend J. Finch Smith, M.A., R.D., must be placed foremost. Isabella Banks, London, January 1876. Appendix number two. Since the publication of the last edition of The Manchester Man, the following letter has appeared in the Sheffield Daily Telegraph, April 5th, 1879. It is here reproduced in the hope that for some of my readers it may have interest, since it adds a new feature to my portrait of Madame Broadbent. To the editor of the Sheffield Daily Telegraph. Sir, in your advertisement of the new tale by Mrs. Linnaeus Banks, about to appear in the pages of your journal, you quote some critiques on the Manchester man by the same author. One of the characters is true to the very life. Hers was the first school I ever attended, and I have a vivid recollection of the venerable, stately little dame, a rigid martinet, exacting the utmost deference from all who approached her, and invariably addressed as Madame Broadbent. I have often since recalled my feelings of delight when, for the first time, I went with her and my schoolfellows in great state to the theatre, as described in her novel. She educated the daughters of most of the leading Manchester merchants of that day, the wife of a recent mayor being one of them. Madame Broadbent did not profess the innumerable subjects now required, but all that was attempted was well taught. She inculcated habits of the strictest order, neatness and regularity. The needlework was very beautiful and would excite astonishment in these sewing-machine days. The punishment for talking was very ludicrous. The delinquent was required to sit with her face to the wall, a hideous contrivance of red cloth called the red tongue hanging down her back. It was considered a great disgrace. She succeeded in teaching a deaf and dumb girl to speak, a feat of which she was justly proud. If you think the above remarks on a character well known in Manchester during the early part of the present century are of interest, they are at your service. C.B. Rotherham, March 30th, 1879 I regret that at the time this letter, of so much interest to me, appeared. I was too ill to communicate with the writer through the medium of the newspaper, and so the opportunity for thanks or correspondence was lost. It is also possible that some of those who have followed the Reverend Joshua Brooks through this narrative may be amused by the following category of the books in his library as advertised for sale after his decease, in not only affording some insight into the inner self of the man, but being characteristic of the advertising of the period. Library of the Great Reverend Joshua Brooks consisting of nearly 6,000 volumes, to be sold by auction by Mr. Thomas Dodd at his auction repertory, number 28, King Street, Manchester, on Monday, May 13, 1822, and nine following days, Saturday and Sunday excepted. To commence precisely at half-past ten in the forenoon, and at three in the afternoon of each day. 
the interesting collection of books is replete with the most valuable works in divinity and ecclesiastical history, classics, lives, memoirs, history and important events, voyages, travels, tours, poetry, education, bibliography, magazines, reviews, tracts, and a profusion of miscellaneous facetia of the most enlivening and entertaining description, abounding in prophetic admonitions, solid remarks, comfortable treatises, learned compendiums, solid discourses, pious devotions, moral emblems, profound researches, happy thoughts, gospel treasures, choice gleanings, unerring guides, divine parables, pleasant reflections, poetical blossoms, flowers of literature, wonderful predictions, notable discoveries, desirable acquisitions, remarkable adventures, profitable pursuits, diverting anecdotes, lively sallies, singular occurrences, chronological details, curious paradoxes, astonishing conjurations, strange bubbles, elegant epistles, select letters, acute criticisms, charming themes, delightful novels, old romances, comical works, droll transactions, exquisite epigrams, smart repartees, fairy tales, facetious puns, humorous stories, merry lucubrations, love stratagems, ingenious enigmas, revealed mysteries, useful hints, magical tricks, whimsical customs, odd freaks, queer jokes, flimflams, entertaining recreations, experimental philosophy, classical odes, Delphic oracles, eloquent orations, keen satires, striking incidents, happy intelligence, tea-table chat, and, lastly, wine and oil for drooping souls. The books may be viewed on Thursday, May 9th, and previous to the days of sale when catalogues may be had at one shilling each. It is only honest to add that I am indebted to a correspondent of the Manchester City News, Notes and Queries, for the above. I.B. London, April 1881 End of Part 48